you know, it's pretty cut and dry for TradFi. You know, this is the next ETF crack they're going to get. There's not going to be one for a while after this, you know, probably like a couple of years, you know, maybe three years, something like that. But, you know, price is going to drive narrative. And when you see that Bitcoin is doing so well on the back of these ETF flows, people are just going to get up to the plate and swing. Um, it's it's going to be pretty cut and dry. And like, I think the things that matter with ETH are it's a name brand. It's going to be one of the two that has an ETF and it's going to be basically the beneficiary of, of these flows alongside Bitcoin. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. Hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Swell, a team leading the restaking future with their liquid restaking token are sweet now i've talked about liquid restaking on this program before i think it is going to be a massive tectonic shift for ethereum and i am super super excited about it and i like the swell team a lot goes without saying do your own research this is not financial advice you guys all know the drill again i like this team and if you stick around i'm going to describe how you can restake your eth in swell earn pearls eigenlayer points and a whole bunch of future rewards so thank you very much for swell for making this episode possible hey everyone wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor flood protocol the optimal dex aggregator. Now, if you are a listener of Bell Curve, you know that MEV is a massive problem, which is why we are so pumped to partner up with Flood on this season. Flood is the only gasless and MEV-free aggregator that not only gets you the best execution, but also gives you back all the extra surplus that you create every single time you swap. Now, this is relevant for both swappers and developers, but you're going to be hearing all about them later in the program. So for now, thank you, Flood, and back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. You got Michaels one and two, Vance and Miles. Fellas, welcome. Jim. Here we are. Jim, Jim. Jim, Jim. Elon, Elon hit a couple of GMs this week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Do you guys see on Farcaster, you can actually do, uh, you can do, instead of liking something, you can just toss a little GM. I don't know how that actually works, but. Have you guys been messing around on Farcaster now that we're like two weeks into this hype? I need to get on Farcaster. I've been slack on that. I think Michael's maybe a bit further along. Yep. <clears throat> well, I had, uh, I think a similar situation to you know where I signed up a long time ago. Like the whole Dan DM got in. Then my Apple ID got hacked in December. And literally with everything uh, that goes your Apple ID, so does your all of your apps associated with your Apple ID. Which means I had to restart. So no, I'm I'm back, but it is tough. Frames is actually pretty cool. I, I like you know some of the narrative around headless marketplaces and kind of headless advertising, um, headless transactions. But it's gonna be real. It's like a just came out, and people are gonna start experimenting with it. Um, it's uh, I'm I'm actually talking with the guy who did the uh, Girl Scout cookie 
uh, frame. Just, I think he's working on something new. Um, apparently, he had to fulfill like a thousand Girl Scout cookie orders. <laughs> you know, that's pretty funny. Twitter's hungry for some thin men. Um, but I mean, there's there's people experimenting. It's cool stuff. I think it's cool. I've talked about uh, me and Vance covered it when Frames sort of came out, but it solves actually a lot of problems pretty unironically for Blockworks, like some of our big problems. So I'm just rooting for it. I, I really hope it ends up working and a good portion of crypto Twitter migrates over there. I think it'd be a Yeah, commerce, commerce plus consumer is a, a powerful concept that nobody's really tapped yet. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so in terms of stories of the week, I actually wanted to start with the... Uh, I wanted to talk about the ETFs. I don't really want to spend too much time on the Bitcoin ETFs. You know, suffice to say, there have been a lot of uh, the the tide has turned on the the flows, both in narrative and in actual um, repeated inflows. We've been having 500, and I think yesterday on Thursday we had over 750 million in net inflows for Bitcoin. By the way, I, you guys might have seen this because it was floating around on Twitter, but you guys, you guys, if you had to guess on what year-to-date flows look like for gold ETFs, what would you say that looks like? I, I, I cheated on this one because I read that tweet, but I mean, let me, if I can pull up the chart from zero hedge, but like golden flows have been getting crushed and Bitcoin has been just absolutely ramping. Um, I, like if you're holding gold right now, you must be a little bit nervous if you don't have a Bitcoin or crypto hedge. Like has someone yeah. checked on, has someone checked on Peter Schiff lately? <sighs> Like a like a wellness a wellness check maybe a wellness check yeah uh, I mean it, this is kind of like the the switch right where the boomers just kind of get rugged by something that they didn't quite see coming but it's just like so empirically clear based on flows that if this train keeps moving it's not gonna the numbers the numbers by the way Michael before you go is the year to date flows for for. The Bitcoin ETF complex, which only again launched like mid January, is four point one billion. So that's net, including the grayscale outflows. That's net, exactly. Net, that's net. And for gold, the inflow or the there have been two point four billion in outflows since the beginning of the year, which is that's pretty wild. Um, so <clears throat> assume a couple of things. Number one, what what is the total outflows from GBTC? Like five, five and a half. Something along those lines. Yeah, okay. I think it's actually closer to six at this point. Maybe six at this point. Um, so assume that that was a lot of pent up, you know, basically sell demand where people wanted to get out of the GBTC based off of a number of reasons, the closing of the the spread trade, the, you know, fact that it's 3x higher than the highest other cost uh, structure. But assume that that is going to slow down. So maybe in future months, you kind of remove a lot of that pent-up sell demand and net-net, we're still talking about something that's over 10 billion of net inflows into these new products. The uh, Bloomberg guys, Eric and James, said that when they were, and I don't know who they talked to, but one of the things that they referenced uh, early on is that a lot of the people who are in GBTC are not people who are looking to necessarily rotate into new products. They're looking to close their 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 spread trade, or they're looking to kind of move on and, and kind of cash out. Um, and so the flows I don't think are out of GBTC into the other nine products or the other eight, however many it is. 
I think it's really net new into these new products with some people leaving the GBTC pool. And and so if we extrapolate this out even further, what we're really talking about here is something that's on the order of like $10 billion of net inflows over the first month. Obviously, that breaks all the records like GLD. Um, you know, it took them like three or four years I was reading to get to those level of daily inflows, to get to this level of size. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind here is number one, there's a lot of platforms that these independent advisors and financial institutions have, you know, basically as their systems that they have to deal with. And, and a lot of those platforms have not even integrated these products yet. And so there's still the capability for a lot of the, and, and if you talk to a lot of the asset managers, a lot of them are sitting there saying, we're going to wait for three months to see where these products net settle. So we know which ones to go in on and we know which ones to trade. So there's a lot of people still waiting in the wing that I think is really interesting and probably will keep the inflows coming. Um, but I mean, if we're talking $10 billion a month, like it's $120 billion a year, and that's way higher than anyone's highest estimate by a factor. Mike, share, share what I've got on my screen at the moment. Um, I mean, this gives just a visual representation to what some of Michael's talking about. <laughs> like, does that, if you're holding gold, does that chart make you nervous? Wow. 100, yeah. 100%. Um, and it's just like, I was watching the Gary Gensler CNBC interview yesterday where he's like, it's just an accounting ledger. Like, talk about coping. And you can kind of see how people who would be holding gold would be kind of saying the same things. But if this trickle turns into a flood, it's going to be really interesting to see the market caps of Bitcoin and gold converge. And on the flow side, the last thing I'll say is there was an interview on CNBC with a couple of large RAs, and they're pegging the first two years of demand for these crypto ETFs as $150 billion, which would kind of foot with like the first $10 billion of inflows this month. But like if Bitcoin breaks all time highs and the marketing machine gets going, like I could see it going far higher than that. Um, well, I, yeah. And so I, th I think I think the story is just unprecedented demand and effectively everyone mis misunderestimating. What, like, how do you miss this large of investor demand for a product? Well, it kind of does not look favorably upon the ETF industry as a whole. So well, you mean the SEC and not the ETF industry. Right. But but I mean, everyone and their mother in the ETF industry outside of like James Saford, Balchunas was like, these things are going to have no demand. Yeah, I actually, to Vance's point, if you remember, uh, so State Street has sort of famously, they were doing things in, in crypto and then they they pulled out and you go, but if you rewind the, the tape back a couple of years, you know, when people at these big institutions were interviewed, you know, it was like, there's no client demand for this. You know, that's why we're not investing in the space because there's no client demand. And I think that's been proven incorrect and do you, do you remember that vanguard literally has blocked these products yeah yeah i i guess that's a brand thing from their standpoint but fidelity got i don't know tens of thousands of new accounts within the first couple of days which makes me very happy as a fidelity alum um but you know i think I, I'd, I'd also be super curious to see just like uh even on the fidelity platform i guess what the aum of you know Bitcoin held directly because you can do that now. You can all buy Bitcoin and ETH directly versus the ETF side. I'm sure it's very different for retail versus anything you know, it, it institutional like with on the advisor side or even even on the asset management side. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel like an 
you know, the cost structure is very different, right? There's like zero, zero fees on the direct versus at least something on the ETF. Um, it will be super interesting to see just how that might shift over time, or maybe it never does. But a good point. Well, it's interesting. So Robinhood reported their results, and they have all 11 ETFs listed, and they're still saying that 90% of their volume is coming through, like people actually buying Bitcoin and not the ETFs. So there's going to be some sort of age divide between these brokerage houses, where the boomers just want a security, and you know the zoomers kind of want the real thing. And I think that balance is nice. You don't want like I kind of view like all of this Bitcoin going into these ETFs as like coins that are being siphoned out of our industry, which is kind of like cool and, and kind of sad. But like we should try to hold on to the physical as much as possible. For yeah, as long as possible. especially if we ever get like an ETF, I think that becomes even more, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's closer to home, right? Because we actually use this stuff and feel like there's more that can be done with it. So, so that's exactly what I was going to say, which is, I wonder if there's some advantage to holding securities in a Fidelity account, like you can borrow against it, you can use it as margin versus the core Bitcoin itself, which you may not be able to use. Um, so you, you, uh, t- you touched on it earlier with these, you know, like uh, compatibility with backend systems, right? And so I think that is a big part of it and a big part of like, what we were trying to figure out at the time is like, okay, great, we want basically people want everything on one screen right and they want no sort of friction in terms of their workflows and processes and how do you basically you know map over all of that to holding the asset direct it's a lot more challenging than uh you know an etf right um but it's possible and it's already you know we've already kind of figured that out but that definitely plays into it um at least for the institutional whether it's you know a fiduciary right holding on behalf of somebody else one other thing, you know, Vance, you just mentioned uh, sort of the mental framework of the the underlying that goes into these ETFs just being sort of moved into this this like black hole. Uh, but another way that you could look at it as well is like if you looked at this is kind of going to be kind of a silly analogy, but like TradFi is an L1, right? And what ETH is sort of doing is, you know, ETH exports wrapped versions of itself up to OP, like Optimism and Arbitrum. And there are certain properties there, like you get the more direct security assurances of ETH, but you can actually use the ETH to, to do things. And then in the uh, in this other wrap version that we're exporting now into TradFi, then it has these other properties and it's like custodied by, you know, <laughs> Fidelity or BNY Mellon or whoever ends up custodying it. And like the kind of shitty part of that property is you have to pay a management fee on it, but it's also like pretty safe and you get some of the legal assurances of being in the US. So that's that's like another mental framework that you could maybe have for the ETFs. Yep. And I, I think um, the reason I kind of refer to it as a black hole is because there's no in-kind redemptions. It's going to actually be like pretty hard to get coins like out of the ETFs back onto the exchanges. Um, and and maybe some additional kind of inside baseball commentary on just like how impactful these floats have been and, and could continue to be is that like the, the coin allocation process of getting coins from exchanges to you know, basically the ETF custodians is like one thing, but you know, we have market makers reaching out to us saying like, Hey, can we borrow, can we borrow Bitcoin for 12 hours and, you know, we'll give it to us now and we'll sell it to the ETFs tomorrow morning. And we'll give you like, you know, some yield on it in, in the next 18 hours. And it's like the inventory levels of these market makers is becoming extremely constrained. It's like sec lending. Yeah. Wait, can I tell you another? So I was on a call this week with a large, market maker and one of the things that they were extremely focused on was this idea of 
yield um, and the underlying that they're holding. So their goal is like, I don't want to be to basically be holding anything in inventory that I'm not earning yield on. But most of the liquidity is in the Bitcoin and ETH trading pairs. And so what they're basically trying to do is create a system and to lower the amount of time that they can go from, you know, instead of holding ETH, they're going to hold Steeth. Um, and what they're going to do is they want to move the amount of time. If, like, if they want to conduct a trade or something, they'll go from Steeth into ETH back into something that bears yield. And they're trying to minimize the amount of time where they're holding the underlying. And I, I just think you guys have been sort of banging this drum and I feel like people are underestimating the degree to which TradFi just freaking loves yield. And I feel like that um, as that's going to be a massive part of the narrative uh, moving forward. Yeah. Crypto loves yield too. Like, yeah, we love yeah, yeah, actually crypto loves yield. We love, not as much as airdrops, but, but yeah. Yeah. Love, but, but we're yeah. starting to build this kind of like repo market within crypto. And, and the first use case of this repo market is filling this ETF demand that is basically overwhelming the balance sheet of the crypto native market makers. Like you have to remember, you have the authorized contract participants on the ETF side. And then you have basically the crypto native people who are like taking coins from Binance and putting them in, in Coinbase or, you know, from OKX to Coinbase. And like, those are the people who are balance sheet constrained just because like the biggest market makers in the industry are Wintermute, GSR, Jump, not so much anymore, like the Cumberland. Um, and Cumberland is like a huge, you know, multi-asset desk, but there's just not enough capital right now to fulfill these these BTC buys. Um, it's interesting. So guys, maybe we could, um, you know, transition to from the Bitcoin part of this into the ETH story here. And I would love to get your guys' take on, I think a debate that I've started to see form a little bit on at least Twitter, which is, is there going to be similar amount of institutional demand for a spot ETH ETF, the same as there was for a spot Bitcoin ETF? And I have my own thoughts on this, but I kind of wanted to tee it up and get your guys' thoughts on this. So I don't think there's going to be the same brand appeal. Um, I mean, look at what we're talking about in relation to gold. I think Bitcoin is, is pretty representative of digital gold. At least that's the zeitgeist that most in maybe like boomer investors think about it in. Um, but I think what is baked into whatever the ETH ETF, you know, seems to have at least at this point, based on a lot of the applications that we've seen is the ability to state, which creates this whole different type of product, which I, I think is going to be pretty unique to the entire industry where the ability to say, Hey, I want to have exposure to this e ecosystem. I know Ethereum is something that I've heard of. I don't really know that much about it. But hey, it's spitting off, you know, 4% yield. And that could be a, a base case, a downside protection, a margin of safety. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Like upside, huge. Downside protected in, in a lot of ways. So I, I think the devil will be in the details in terms of what they can get past with the SEC. Um, anecdotally, though, I, I've heard that you know, it, it most likely will not be in May. Um, and it'll probably be something. It's like 50-50, it'll be in May but it's like 80% chance it'll be by the end of the year. Um, and so I think for us to be able to get the product that we want, um, you know, it's actually going to be, you know, what we need, um, but it's not going to be, you know, something that happens in the timeline that people are expecting. And even like all the pundits that I see on Twitter are, are kind of coming to this perspective. Yeah, I disagree with that. Um, I think it will be a May date. Um, just based on the different types of applications that are being put forward and, and just how aggressive they are with including staking. Um, 
and whether it's in May or whether it's, you know, like what I'm saying is for staking in particular, staking is for for staking in particular, that will probably be like a 2025 thing. Mm -hmm. I think you see the base level spot approval this year. And then you kind of like haggle with the regulators um, to, to get more kind of full featured staking products put in there. But you know, the, the interviews that I've been watching recently have been with Hester purse and she's been pretty unequivocal that like, look, we're not going to do this like court or court thing again. Um, and even if we do, it's going to be a truncated process. The DC circuit court starts in August, uh, but it would be a truncated court case ruling based on all of the grayscale priors. So you're not going to have that same like year, you know, maybe if it goes to court, it's like three or four months in our opinion. Um, and I, I bias with a lot of what the Bloomberg panel on, on this week was where, you know, I think one person was at 50, 50 and one person was at 75, 25. And I think that's kind of like representative of, of where the odds are. Um, I will say that like, you know, it's pretty cut and dry for TradFi. You know, this is the next ETF crack they're going to get. There's not going to be one for a while after this, you know, probably like couple of years you know maybe three years something like that but you know price is going to drive narrative and when you see that bitcoin is doing so well on the back of these etf flows people are just going to get up to the plate and swing um it's it's going to be pretty cut and dry and like i think the things that matter with eth are it's a name brand it's going to be one of the two that has an etf and it's going to be basically the beneficiary of, of these flows alongside bitcoin and I see it less as Bitcoin versus ETH going forward. I think you're going to have kind of like the second wind of, you know, Michael talked about this, but products getting into natural prime brokerage accounts, that's going to be led by Bitcoin in the next three months. Like they're going to put all the legwork in. They're going to get access to all these different RAs and and distribution channels. And then it's going to be like, you know, do you want to buy the 50-50 Bitcoin and ETH combination ETF that we have? Do you only want to go buy ETH? You know, like, Maybe we do this thing where Bitcoin runs so high that there's like now this massive cash up trade, but like all the priors are going to be very favorable. And so I think we're kind of like rerunning this thing where it was like, oh yeah, there's going to be no demand for Bitcoin. It's like, well, guess what? There's a shit ton of demand for these things. Um, And if you don't have anything else coming down the pike after that, like it feels like the game is going to be pretty easy. Yeah. Keep keep in mind, you're going to have to have a futures product before you have a spot product for any other asset. And, and we're not even really, and we're not even really close to anything else being there. The the other thing I'll say is that um, if you look at the liquidity of ETH versus Bitcoin, it's probably about sixty percent. You know, there's a lot less of the ETH on exchanges. The last time I checked, there was about twelve and a half million down from almost twenty seven million at the middle of last year. You know, you have restaking, you have you know the NFT comeback, which we can talk about. Like, there's just a lot of supply sinks for this ETH. Yeah, and you don't really have that with Bitcoin. I was gonna. And do you think that will play into like the demand for the ETF? Just because I guess for starters, ETH and Bitcoin are very different products, right? Um, And and so maybe they have different places within a broader allocation. Um, And then two, I think you would hope over time that people realize there's you know a lot you can do with your ETH, and there's you know I'd say like the, the the difference between holding a Bitcoin ETF and versus direct versus holding ETH versus direct is is way bigger right um well yeah so i i think that that is the question of when okay so i think you know 
one of the things that we're seeing in some of these applications right now is the ability to stake. I think that that is a total scarecrow argument and they're they're putting it in there basically as a negotiation tactic to be like, okay, fine, like we'll take out the staking, but we're going to move forward with the rest. And so you're going to have, you know, basically these ETF spot ETFs, ETH spot ETFs move first. And then it's a question of, okay, well, what can you do afterwards? And so the product will add features, they'll add capabilities. And I think that that's where, like, it sort of is just like the catnip that draws you in. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. But in the same way you have the happening, you have the same supply scenes or, or even more supply scenes on the ETH side. And I think, you know, you're going to, any increase in demand is going to drive this reflexive cycle that I think draws attention to it, just as, as you're seeing with Bitcoin right now. And so you're going to get the same price action kind of narrative driving effects of what the spot ETF launch will look like. But then it's it's sort of like, okay, I've been educated on what this asset is. I've been educated on the fact that it's an institutional class, institutional grade. It has all the distribution that we've that we've you know been able to enable with all the e with all the Bitcoin spot ETF products. Now what can I do with it? And I think there's going to be some financial products that do that on behalf of you know, people basically tied within a, a security wrapper. But I think just anything where you can educate more people on what Ethereum is and, and how it works and what you can do with it is a positive catalyst because then you can start to build on-chain products that maybe people want to go discover as well. And the, the psychology of investors as well is like, you know, if you want to be long tech, you're going to buy the Mag7. It's not like you're going to have like this super principled, like, ooh, I want... 40% Apple and I'm going to underweight Netflix and then I'm going to go, you know, overweight Microsoft. When a new asset class pops up, it's just like, I need allocation. Um, and so I don't think investors are going to basically, you know, distinguish between ETH and Bitcoin. They're just going to be the name asset crypto brands. Um, like, like for instance, like, you know, imagine a conversation with an advisor, you got Bitcoin, you got ETH, you've got a 50, 50 Bitcoin and ETH ETF. Like what's that conversation like, you know, maybe it's like, you have a bunch of gold, so you want to be overweight Bitcoin, maybe. But I think it's more so like, look, interest rates are going down. Bitcoin and ETH are the standard bearers for this industry. You're probably better just like, you know, 50-50 allocating. L last thing I'll say on Bitcoin right now is is um, the flows have been absolutely shocking and so positively encouraging for the industry. But ETH BTC bottomed basically on the day that these ETFs came out. And so, you know, what that tells me is that in the face of billions of dollars of inflows, this catch-up trade is already starting. But also, like, what you're probably seeing manifest right now is just a supply scarcity of actual ETH. And I think one of the things that Michael and I got wrong in 2023 was, like, there was this huge overhang from proof-of-work Ethereum miners dumping all of their ETH. Like, we, we didn't really consider how pissed off these people were at basically this gravy train being shut down. But that whole year was basically them selling this ETH and them selling calls on this ETH and, and kind of dampening the volatility. But right now what you see is like this the supply shrinkage playing out and you're starting to see it in the options market. Like ETH calls are cheaper than Bitcoin relative to upside. And so like I think a lot of the options activity is going to be super important here and options on on uh, on the iBit and you know BTC ETF products launch in in June, and I think that's when you're going to see this next kind of kick higher where people start to get really interested in the options market, and people are eventually just going to be like, look, um, Bitcoin options are great, uh, we obviously want those, but like these are more expensive than ETH options.
relative to the roadmap, relative to the ETF flows that are to come, all of that stuff. Yeah, I agree with so much of that, Vance. And just to underscore the point that I think, just to drive it home, I agree. I feel like a lot of the sort of bickering about ETHs, you know, is it ultrasound money or is it not ultrasound money? And how does it you know, stack up against... No, those are for crypto natives to argue about. <laughs> those are not conversations that are going to be had, you know, in... Uh, in the brokerage, wherever, yeah, it's that's not what TradFi is thinking about. They're just gonna, I'd be looking at it like, yep, I want broad exposure to this. Oh, and by the way, um, ETH is kind of smaller and newer, and I want to catch the next Bitcoin. And I, th the other thing that I would say as well is like we've talked about on the show, like I'm sure there was a minor selling dynamic la last year, but also the, you know, ETH Bitcoin is playing out exactly like it did last cycle. I mean, Bitcoin ran last cycle. Bitcoin dominance always spikes around this time. This is like super typical market behavior for as far as crypto cycles confirmed. And kind of the next thing to happen is like, okay, Bitcoin has its run and then it's ETH and then alts, right? That's if it just replayed again, same as it did last time, that, that's what you would kind of expect, right? So I feel like we're seeing pretty typical behavior. The economics are, are also undeniable in that ETH is more reflexive than Bitcoin. And so smaller moves in ETH will have more price action in ETH, which has more price action in ETH, which has more price action in ETH. It feeds off of itself. Two, two truisms that are always at the top of my mind is, number one, there's always a market to being early or earlier to something. Like if Bitcoin hits, you know, 150K and, and ETH is like at, you know, six or 7K, like there's going to be this massive, like, okay, cool. I want to be new to this thing. And the second one is that, you know, we can debate ultrasound money and MEV and all the intricacies of blockchains, but a lot of the stuff when it really gets going is that price drives narrative, which which drives price. Um, and so I think they're, especially in the bear market, people are in crypto hyper discerning. This thing's a scam. This thing's not a scam. This is good. This is bad. You kind of have more of like a peanut butter spread when it's a bull market, when it's just like, look, these two things are, are going to work and, and, you know, whatever issues you have with the protocol or ultrasound money or the branding or whoever, it's like, it kind of goes out the window. The bar gets lower is another way of saying that. Yeah. I would call this ETH ETF, uh, disbelief is like the last remnants of bear market PTSD. It'll get blown out. Um, so we'll, we'll see. Um, all right, let's, let's, uh, or any other, um, I kind of wanted to, to to move into this debate about something, again, that I've been seeing pop up on Twitter. Vance, I saw you commenting on this. And Miles, frankly, I know you're um, pretty deep in the weeds on on this stuff. But, you know, I wanted to have this debate about whether or not restaking equals leverage, right? There's There's been a sort of increasing calls. I know, I know Chris Berninski, uh, whose opinion I respect an enormous amount, kind of tweeted out that a lot of the leverage that sneakily entered the system during the last cycle that we didn't necessarily notice at the time was through CFI, uh, CFI lending desks, but also the, the GBTC uh, or the grayscale trades, ETH and GBTC trades. Um, and he implied that maybe this, this time it's going to be through restaking. And to, to sort of set the debate up, um, and then maybe Miles, I'll turn it over to you and get your take here. But the way that the way that this could be seen as leverage is, um, you know, you kind of have the same pot of ETH, right? The ETH isn't necessarily expanding, but through staking and then opting into additional slashing conditions, you are sort of increasing the the claims on that ETH or the amount of uh, stuff that that ETH supports. So in that sense, it sort of looks like leverage, but in a lot of cases, and Eigenlayer has actually specifically outlined this on their 
on their docs, this is very different from how like rehypothecation would work uh, in a prime brokerage type setting, right? Because you have much more transparency, you know, in the, in the, the PB or like kind of brokerage case, they will take your assets and they don't have to tell you what they're doing with it. They can, um, they have much more discretion there. So in some senses, it's very different, but I mean, Miles, can you kind of, what's your take yeah. on all this? So I think it's just like, um, I think the whole debate is, is very, you know, it's just kind of around semantics and I think it's kind of important, but also kind of asking the wrong questions. And I can kind of touch on that later. I, I think, so first of all, rehypothecation versus leverage, kind of different, um, financial leverage versus say, you know, whatever we're calling this security leverage is, is very different, right? So the price of, you know, an asset goes down, you're not going to get slashed. So that's very different than say taking a margin position. Um, now, if you are looping, you know, your LRT position or looping your deposits into more of an actual like leverage position, um, then yeah, I think you could, you could get liquidated. Right. Um, but to me, this looks more like, uh, bonds, honestly, uh, it's more like, okay, I have, you know, some range of risk that I can take on here. Uh, I'm not lending out capital, right? I'm lending out security to some extent, um, and maybe the ability to draw on capital, but it's not really the ability to draw on capital because I think it's all going to get burned, right? If something, if, if, uh, there's a slashing of that. And so I would just look at it like, you know, anything from, uh, just, you know, I would say incremental risk that you add as you go across the risk spectrum from like a treasury to a triple A to like a junk bond, right? And so you have like 20 AVSs and all of them have very different slashing conditions. They're all very, you know, heterogeneous probably. Um, it's kind of like, you know, different different loans within different fix, fixed income products. Um, and so I would think of it more like, you know, default risk rather than uh, maybe liquidation risk because there is, I would say the only, the only, if you're in the camp of like, this is rehypothecation, this is leverage. I mean, you could argue that they kind of act like binary options as well because the slashing at the moment, at least, is like all 32 of your ETH or you're all good. It's There's no like, you know, partial slashing sort of component here. And so... The more sort of AVSs you add, the higher, you know, a risk you're taking on with this binary option. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the better questions to ask are really around like, what are you signing up for depending on the AVS? Um, you know, what, what happens with this, with this, like, you know, in the case of a slashing event, is this all this pooled collateral just like burned or can the AVSs, you know, have this sort of like option to redistribute, you know, to say like uh, the validator that, you know, flagged the the slashing event or maybe the users that got screwed, right? I think that actually makes a huge difference as well because then I think the overall cost of capital goes up if people have incentive now to for these slashing events to happen, right? Um, so yeah, I would I would say that it's it's more like a, you know, the spectrum of risk across different bonds. Um, and I think it really does matter on like an AVS to AVS basis, what, what you're signing up for and how they design the slashing, you know, rules. And, and also if Eigenlayer like steps in and sets almost global standards of like how, you know, slashing should work similar to how like 
you know, defaults, right? Like on, on loans have processes or bankruptcies, like as, as, prof, as like processes around, you know, who gets this collateral first. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there, but definitely curious to hear your thoughts. It, it is like, you can't argue. It's not like, looks like leverage, you know, talks like leverage. So it's probably leverage, but it's not leverage though. There, 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 there is no inherent leverage in restaking. Please repeat after me if you're listening to this conversation. So like we, we restake, um, and how we think of it is, you know, we've taken our ETH, we've put it into the eigenlayer deposit queue. Um, and you know, right now there is no ABS, there is no slashing, like there, there is no risk. Yeah. Um, I think once, uh, you know, and, and of course, you know, if you take your liquid staking tokens, you put them in there and you get a liquid restaking token back and then you then put it on a lending marketplace and then you borrow money against it and then you put it back in. You are creating leverage. That's that's the looping leverage. Yes. Right. But we're, we're, we're not there. And, and like borrowing, borrowing against your assets is a totally different thing than restaking assets. So I think like the creation of leverage is like it doesn't even exist today. I think where the point gets more fine is you know like i assume that we're all farming the eigenlayer token right now i think there will be a time where that moves to we're all farming maybe like a combination of abs tokens and the eigenlayer token and the point like whatever the slashing conditions that the abs is imposed on your eth you know again it's not leverage but like you know if you if you get slashed you might lose five percent of your eth if you're on some shitty abs and so like AVS selection is important as you think about what is the downside here. But again, there's no leverage unless you put leverage on. That's the thing about leverage is like you need to go borrow money and buy more and restake to add leverage. That That's the leverage component. I mean, Miles, that description I think is a pretty apt one in into how we think about the future potential of what this could look like. But here, here's the thing that I think people will, will look back on and what you just described is a very complicated process for an individual person to go through. You've got to evaluate multiple ABSs. You got to see their unique heterogeneous staking staking uh, conditions. You got to understand their slashing conditions. You got to be able to like allocate the capital. I mean, we don't even know exactly how that's going to work. And you know, to use the same analogy, it's like you you want to be your own you know like CDO manager. Um, obviously not. Um, I think that this is actually where all of the LRT solutions could step in, uh, where just in the same way that you have, you know, with, with some of the L LST solutions like Lido, where they're making choices on which validators to actually, you know, bring into the queue. Obviously, you know, Lido, for instance, is moving into a more decentralized way of selecting the, the node operators. Um, but you can imagine a, a place where there is sort of like, control held at a central uh, layer that then eventually gets decentralized to select and choose. I think that actually, like, there will be, I'm sure there will be someone who blows themselves up just because of the fact that they didn't understand putting money on this ABS and, you know, restating that one and not doing something or another led to them losing their capital. It's like, oh, no, I blew up because of leverage. Um, it's like, well, no, that's not true. It's just bad selection. But the selection is going to be tough. And, and I think that that's kind of crypto Twitter loves to pick, you know, points of leverage now that we've had multiple blowups. 
sort of like selecting, you know, five out of the last two recessions, you know, if you have that, that mentality, you're just going to be looking for it the whole time. Um, it's not going to be leverage that blows people up. It's just going to be bad selection. Yeah. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And that's like why the value prop of LRTs is so clear right now, even more, even more clear than like, I, I'd say like, you know, the friction that it kind of, you know, abstracts away from a restaker is even more significant than maybe the friction that Lido abstracts away from, you know, a normal staker, right? Because the like heter it's like so heterogeneous in like how you could actually, you know, interact with this with this network. Um but I also think that's why those are two different products. Um mm -hmm. and that's why I think precisely we ha have a huge, huge spectrum of different LRTs. And I actually don't think any one in particular is going to be able to actually loop that much because there's going to be so many of them, even under one entity could, you know, have a family of like different funds. Right. And, and so I think that the whole looping thing is a bit overblown. I mean, there will be like dumb sort of, you know, new lending protocols that come out and allow for it. And, but I think it'll be like small enough that it's not a catastrophic blow up. Um, and then I think the other point of complexity is actually on the AVS side. It's like, how the hell do I know what's actually securing my protocol? in terms of like right. both the underlying collateral and where else it's hanging out on the weekends, uh, you know, and could be slashed at any given time that is pushing a lot of like potential value capture, you know, up the stack by creating these, you know, opportunities to, to remove that friction. And so I think it's good, but we need a lot more tooling. A hundred percent. So here's, here's my thesis as to how LST versus LRT is going to play out. LST has historically been a game of who can amass the most amount of ETH because to your point, it, it's very much a, it, it's a much more homogenous selection criteria for which node operators to go after. And the process is pretty homogenous in and of itself. Whereas I think it's the one uh, protocol or, or group that has the best connections to the ABS's understanding of which ones to choose um, and, and sort of can manage the complexity best, not necessarily the one that can amass the most amount of ETH that's going to win the LRT game. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be harder to figure that out because it's not going to be like a Dune dashboard that you can use to track. It's, it's going to be something else. Um, and I, in, invariably, people are going to want to push boundaries in terms of the risk curve. They're, wanna, they're going to want to go back to ABS. It's spitting off the most amount of yield because they want to have that high metric. But there's more blow up risk, so I, yeah. I don't think we have a standardized metric yet. But um, it's going to be a very different game than the LSTs. I, I I totally agree, and I've been banging on this drum to Mike for a little while. That um, you know, I, I just think they're very different products. LRTs compete on total risk adjusted return. LSTs compete on basically you know achieving parity with with ETH in terms of moneyness and utility, right? So it's the network effects of like an asset are much, much stronger than the network effects of like a mutual fund or like one rental right. fund. Right. And the preferences around funds are, are, are much wider. Um, so I don't think that there's going to be like, and I think the more, the more an LRT tries to compete directly with Steeth by being everything to everyone, like, you know, we're going to basically accept every kind of collateral asset on this side. We're going to, you know, try to have an AVS criteria that like is, perfect for everybody i just think they're going to be they're not going to be good at either um so yeah it's, it's super interesting I, that's a little bit of a tangent from like the original question but um just to bring it back to the original question just again there is no inherent leverage in restaking i think your actual biggest risk is if you decide to add leverage 
that's on you, number one. Number two, I, I think the biggest security vector and, and threat vector is getting hacked still. Um, and it changes and it gets less risky as Eigenlayer gets more Lindy. But to your point about like how Eigenlayer enforces these global kind of governance standards or at least like AVS quality standards, like if an AVS is shittily constructed, does that lead to an increased risk of, of slashing? I'm honestly not worried about. If we lost 5% of our ETH in a slashing event, I think you kind of need to bake that into the cake if you're like out on the risk curve farming these ABSs. But if you get hacked and you get a zero, that's going to be really tough. Yeah. So I, I don't know how that stuff works yet. I think we're going to have more details in the next couple months, but ABS selection feels like it's going to be paramount to yeah. you know, how secure your your ETH is. The human backstop of the slashing veto committee has not gone away, you know, anytime soon um, for those reasons, like, because the hack is actually probably uh, even just a bug in the slashing software, like rather than, you know, some sort of exploit, right? Um, I think that that matters. And I think it does matter that like, just by the way it's designed, because it's not part of ETH itself. You know, it is all 32 of your ETH or nothing, right? Like that, right. that, that there is no partial slashing quite yet. And I think that's, you know, probably something that should get figured out because it doesn't make sense that, you know, a, a double sign should result in 32 ETH slashed from an AVS where a double sign on, on ETH is like, you know, a very small fraction of, of your stake. Right. So there's a lot to figure out, but um, I think, I think, I think we're all on the same page. It's not leverage until you, you know, start looping this thing. This reminds me of like, you know, will Lido soft commit to, to you know, 33% valid. It's just like, I feel like ETH people sometimes get worked up about the wrong stuff. I think this is one of them. Yeah. Now it's a different question though. If like, like your point Vance, like why is this, why is there already five or six, was it like 6 billion of capital, you know, deposited in the eigenlayer? It's not for yield because I don't think there is, you know, let's say even... Uh, like $300 million of security spend from AVSs right now, cumulatively, like ready to go. Um, and that, that, you like, that, that would basically double, you know, the, the sort of native staking yield if you restake to every single AVS. And so like, I'm curious to see how this mercenary capital, like how sticky it is, because it's not like an LP pool where you can just go like, all right, got that airdrop. Let's move it over to the next one. There is some like kind of unwinding that you're going to have to do here. That's that's you know adds a little bit of friction. Oh. We'll see. Uh, the vast majority of the capital is going to move. I I think I, I think we're going to see. I don't know. We think it's going to launch in Q2 or Q3 eigenlayer, something like that. And you know, assume there's going to be like a minimum one year cliff, like kind of like Celestia has today where the FTV is just going to be super high because there's not a lot of float. And like, then you have all these AVSs coming out and, you know, maybe that's another year, a year and a half of these tokens. Like, I don't think you're really going to see the Eigenlayer capital move for the first year after launch. Mm. Subsidies on subsidies on subsidies. I, oh, but like, you know, there's always going to be this new game to play. Like, oh, you're in Eigenlayer or will, are you in this AVS? Because it's yielding 500% per year. <laughs> it's it, like, that. that is... There's going to be a long tail of opportunities to keep people interested combined with, you know, just these, these tokens not having a lot of float, meaning yeah. that rewards are going to be super valuable. I feel like it's, it's funny because like the more they pay out, the more the value prop of eigenlayer actually doesn't really make sense versus just launching your own L1, 
right? But then maybe they're just on Eigenlayer for like distribution and marketing and, and things like that, right? Um, that That's what we've noticed. It's like uh, projects are star for distribution. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So they hop on the back, like the Eigenlayer bandwagon that, you know. You, you want to be a hot Eigenlayer project? You know, that it's probably better odds for your project than just launching, you know, as this like unaffiliated thing. Yeah. I think the more interesting, like longer term, all these native like staking opportunities, if we actually do get a proposed, you know, a percentage of the proposer set that can actually be meaningful, right, for these commitments, whether it's something like selling block space futures or like pre comps for L2s, like these are like the sort of just, you know, like MEV boost was to some degree, just net win win versus like this tension of supply side, I want yield, you know, demand side, I want cheap security. Um, but we have a long way to get there. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. Hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Swell, a liquid restaking protocol and the issuer of the RSweep liquid restaking token. Now, if you're a listener of Bell Curve, you know that I am just so fascinated by restaking and liquid restaking. I think it is going to be one of the most important trends in Ethereum, and I am really excited for the benefit that it unlocks both users and also Ethereum, the protocol itself. Now, disclaimer, whenever there's yield involved in a product, do your own research. This is not financial advice. You guys know the drill, but Swell is a great team. They have a non-custodial product, and they are mission-driven on giving you the best liquid staking experience. If you take one benefit away from using liquid restaking, make it be capital efficiency. Now you can earn passive yield from Ethereum. You can earn yield from multiple actively validated services that stack on top of that. And then you can still use our sweep as collateral in DeFi. And because I know y'all are a bunch of DGENs, there's a points angle here as well. But in Swell, we call them pearls. So pearls equal points. And if you stake your ETH with Swell, you can earn pearls and future eigenlayer rewards. And when there's a token generation event, you can swap your pearls for Swell tokens. Head over, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, just pause what you're doing right now. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. Check out Swell. Thank you later. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Flood Protocol, the optimal DEX aggregator. Now, Flood is the perfect partner for this episode on the multi-chain future because Flood is solving so many of the issues that we're going to be talking about this season. And this is relevant for both traders and devs. So if you are a trader, you should definitely head over to FloodSwap and start trading because they solve three massive problems. One, gasless trading. No more pesky trading fees. Two, you don't have to worry about getting front run. MEV free. And then three, they have excellent order routing so that you know that you are getting the best price. So head over to FloodSwap and click the link in the bottom of the show notes. We're going to send you right there. For the devs out there, you can leverage Flood's flexible hooks, allowing you to make swapping a first-class primitive by adding custom order types like TWAPs. Or if you're a wallet builder or something like that, you can actually build your own order flow auction in and start recapturing a bunch of that MEV. If you want to reach out to them, go to devs at flood.bid or just jump right in the Discord. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Appreciate you, Flood. What do you guys think, if I had to hold your feet to, what do you think the eigenlayer when it goes live, what do you think that FDV looks like on day one? 20 billion. I was going to say around 20. Who knows? 
I, I, th- I think it launches a lot lower than that, but it's like... Yeah, day, day one, who knows? A month a month in or, you know, about six months in, I'd probably agree with Michael, but I don't know. There, There's going to be a lot of these L1s that are launching at roughly the same valuation, so I don't see it going that high that, that fast. Yeah. Yeah, like an L1 valuation, or is it more like a Lido valuation, or somewhere somewhere in between there? I, I don't know. I think it's probably closer to the number that you gave out, Michael. But I mean, but it's going to look wonky. And and you know, the TBL and Eigenlayer is somewhat double counted, just because a lot of it is Steeth. That is the largest LST in there. So you're going to see weird things happen where it's like if Eigen is at ten and Lido is at, I think it's at like three or four today. Yeah, you know, people are just gonna are, are gonna think about catching or catching up and, and those trades and how much they're worth and what their roadmaps are respectively. Out or, or Celestia is at whatever nineteen twenty, and IUDA IUDA launches with more throughput. Yeah, but it's not modular money. <laughs> Celestia feels like a natural comp, and Lido feels like a natural comp. And one other thing that I was starting to think about is like, does this end up putting a lot of pressure on Lido? In some ways, um, there's like a co-op petition dynamic in between the two of them. And I do wonder, Miles, you and I talked about this a lot in our liquid staking season, but Lido's always had this opportunity to spin up their own restaking. Uh, I forget what it's called, like unit within the staking router. Yeah, and module. Yeah, module. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Do they do that? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It feels like a lot of folks may, uh, kind of faded restaking, at least like uh, to some degree um, for a while. And I think people are a little bit surprised of just how much mind share and like flows uh, we're seeing right now. And just, you know, I think I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I but... think it's just, I mean, I don't know. I, it is just the airdrop farm. Without that airdrop farm and without Celestia at 20 billion, this would not be the same effect. So we we're able to have like this minimum viable issuance sort of discussion going on in the background, right? Which could like push the stake rate closer to zero at like, you know, some target, right? And then then I think Lido's gonna be looking at like, okay, shit, we gotta do something. Um but I think we're we're entering that like potential acceleration of of you know, of Lido's involvement here. Um It'll be that that'll be super interesting to see. Yeah. And and those two teams are close to Eigen and Lido. So it wouldn't be kind of like direct competition, but definitely understand what you mean. Yeah. Uh just to maybe round this off and then I wanted to close on, you know, we've been talking a lot about airdrops here in general, and uh, Starkware had their airdrop this this week, and um I'd love to get your guys' take on that. But just to maybe, uh, so it, it sounds like we're we're sort of in agreement that it's not exactly financial leverage, but I think one thing that, um, and probably the, the single greatest data point that this won't be the hidden leverage that blows crypto up is that everyone thinks that this is where it's going to be, which is the single strongest data point to indicate that it's probably not going to come from here. Although like, this is where if you talk to like TradFi types looking at crypto, like they're always super interested in where the leverage is because this is just like a one of those lessons of financial gravity that just repeats itself over and over. It doesn't really doesn't really uh, matter what the market is. But uh, like even Vance in that description where you were describing you guys restaking, it is, I think, helpful, at least for me to understand like what your balance sheet looked like, like you as framework, like what did your balance sheet look like pre and post um, the restake? Because 
or like let's just uh, actually approach it from like the perspective of a solo staker you know in a, in a solo staker it's very simplified balance sheet their assets would be the hardware and then the software that they've i guess invested in um but then on the the liability side it's like whatever risk you're taking on from uh like slashing risks like that's how those things balance out and then whatever's left is the equity and so like what does your balance sheet look like after you've opted into like after you've done some restaking well you have an additional income stream but you also have additional liabilities that you've taken on uh, in the form of more slashing risks and i'm making the assumption that eventually there are going to be slashing risks because otherwise this mechanism makes absolutely no sense so it's i the way that i would describe it is it's less of a form of like traditional financial leverage because no one's giving you a loan but something is happening there right you can't create something from nothing and what it kind of looks like to me is more of a form of operational leverage where you you're basically taking like accepting some ability to generate more revenue uh, at the cost of um a very real liability which is the the slashing condition I, I, so I, I i don't i don't think i would call it operational leverage I, I i think we're conflating leverage and risk what you're doing is you're putting on you're putting on more risk you're not levering up and, and that's that's like a very kind of specific difference Yes, there's more operational risk. The AVS is you have to slide. I mean, we talked about this, but but uh, there's not any inherent leverage. You can lever ostensibly in LRT, but you know that that would require you to go to Aave or you know some lending protocol and and borrow against it and lever up. But that's that's a choice you can make. But there there is increased risk by participating in these AVSs. And right now, it's not slashing risk. It's like you know we're solo staking through you know our own validator. It's very easy to do. It's one click through basically any custodian or exchange and so like a lot of the operational risk has been offloaded to the most savvy technical teams on the planet um and so like you know we feel comfortable with that where you know we will reassess is like what are these abs slashing conditions um yeah and that'll be a different phase of the game that we may or may not participate in but there is no leverage here um what's the yield uplift right for what the slat that's, that's a good question. I think that's more correlated to like, you know, if we if we think there's like, you know, call it 5% more risk than just like having Steeth in our wallet versus like putting that into Eigenlayer. Yeah. Um, you know, we think that, you know, ETH yields are probably 4% ETH denominated and we're bullish on ETH obviously. And so like, you know, if that goes up a lot, we'll benefit in kind. On the ABS and Eigenlayer side, I think it's probably another, I don't know, Michael... 10 to 15 percent would be my guess i mean maybe uh, maybe higher than that too all depends on where it comes out right right it, you know if it's a, if it's at 20 billion maybe it's like 30 percent or 40 percent um ap apr at like interest why i mean APY. yeah like well, why do you I mean, why do, I mean, how do you get to that i mean th th think about this Here, here's the basic math there's six billion right now yeah. uh worth of beef that's being staked let's assume everybody's been in the entire time and and you know the snapshot happens right now Let's assume they distribute ten percent because that's typical airdrop. Oh, you're talking about air airdrop yield. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were talking about ABS yield. A ABS yield could be in excess of that. You know, that's probably when you're looking at a hundred or two hundred percent. If if you're you're playing with the right dollar size, but I mean, this is why ETH is the perfect collateral asset, especially for a fund like ours. We can borrow extremely cheaply against it. We can restake it and earn. You know. Anywhere from call it fifteen percent to one hundred percent yield, like it's going to be really hard, you know. If, like we hold Bitcoin too, but like it's going to be really hard for our Bitcoin 
to outperform that actively or like quasi actively managed approach, especially when we can, you know, as we've talked about, if we want to lever things up in a way that you can't do with Bitcoin on chain. I think I'm, I'm going to take the other side on that, on the yield. I think it'll be much lower than people think um, because just you're looking at, let's say again, taking just the deposits at 10 billion, you know, um, is there a billion dollars of, you know, cumulative spend on the AVS side on security, right? If there is, then they should just launch an LLC. Hold, hold on, hold on. That, that, that's the wrong question now. So, so the first, the first question you have to ask is like, let's, let's just do some math. Let's yeah. say it launches its last two evaluations, the Eigenlayer token. Let's say they give get, 10% percent Forget yeah, the yeah, yeah. Miles, is, Miles is saying independent of the Eigenlayer. Steady state. Steady state. It, where, where the steady state? I think each AVS is like going to be like less than 1% yield uplift. That I mean, have. how many... The, the question here is it what's the value of, of the Eigen token? The question here is how much is the cumulative value of all the AVSs? Basically, it's AVS demand. And that... Uh, frankly, I don't know. I mean, we, we've seen pitches for probably close to like 10, 15 different AVS concepts. You know, the first Oracle solution, the first this, the first that. <clears throat> I think that those will come out and the, it, it depends on how big their in like ecosystem itself can get. If it becomes sort of the cumulative value of something like DeFi on East, then yeah, like the, the yield can be pretty high in the steady state. But I also think the the main point here is, you know, if you're staking right now, or if you're you know, contributing to right now, you're going to get the eigenlayer airdrop, and there's going to be eigenlayer distributions probably for you know a period of time after. Whenever those go away, is what Miles is saying is like, what's the steady state? Who knows there? What well, one other yeah. one other wrinkle there, Miles? It would be is eigenlayer going to be the only like there's eigenlayer is sort of the ETH solution for shared security and exporting security, but there are other ecosystem specific solutions. Like in Cosmos, you have interchain security, right? And there was just a, there was an integration this week, even in between Babylon and the hub. So now there's, there's an attempt to essentially do some form of Bitcoin shared security. And it's unclear. There's, there's obviously demand for restaking in other ecosystems. Like Skip has a really cool example of this with their new Oracle, which it's kind of leveraging ABCI plus plus, but they're calling it restaking because very, very similar. But uh, yeah, it, it's sort of unclear whether or not other ecosystems will look to ETH for security or their own sort of ecosystem homegrown security solutions is another big question. Yeah. Basically, totally. is this all eigenlayer demand or is it going to be segmented by ecosystem? The, re the reality is that ETH is the only asset that is big enough to get you the distribution that you would want or need as an ABS. Like we're looking at a bunch of L2s right now. And, you know, some of them are like SVM, uh, e SVM virtual machine, uh, you know, secured by uh, ETH, um, DA done by Celestia. Like they have like all of the kind of different amalgamations, but like the go to market is we're going to give a bunch of money to ETH holders to get them to bridge over. And it's like, well, why don't you start with, you know, Solana? And I think Solana is part of it, but, you know, there's the biggest LST protocol on Solana right now is Jito and there's about 8 million soul staked. It's, it, you're just not even, and, and, you know, 8 million soul staked is about 800 million. Swell, which is, you know, a, a, a smaller liquid restaking token has about the same TVL as that. And so as you think about like what the goals of your project are, you have to address an asset base that is large enough to get the goals that are 
if it's distribution, if it's um, community alignment, if it's whatever. Um, and so I think the restaking efforts on the other chains are going to be a lot smaller. Like we are investors in Jito. We are investors in Babylon, uh, the one you just mentioned. Um, the thing that I could see changing here is that like it is so easy to restake. I mean, it isn't that it isn't that easy. Maybe that's a little overstatement, but like doing it one click at a Coinbase where a lot of these like Bitcoin assets live, maybe that gives you like an uptick there, but people don't really use Bitcoin in the same way that they do ETH. I think that's just like a base fact. I think Bitcoin is a lot more sedentary, just totally. by default. Uh, but but you know, I, I will say though, and you know, uh, we're we're uh, investors as well as well. It's gonna be like we said, someone who can really build relationships with ABSs, who's gonna win this liquid restaking market. And is that gonna be someone you know, in the Bitcoin ecosystem who's going after Bitcoin L2s and you know all these different kind of new narratives? Possible, but. If you're in the ETH ecosystem, you can be relatively smaller than the biggest opportunity in, you know, another competitive ecosystem like Solana and still have an opportunity to shine. And so I, I, I think there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're figuring out with LRTs in the next, you know, three to six months. Um, one, one last thing as well before I want, I want to close on the Stark, Starkware airdrop. But another thing that I feel like because we've all just had uh, bear market PTSD is that I don't know the one thing that at least I have gotten wrong when I'm trying to do business planning for Blockworks at this point in the cycle is just the raw amount of demand that shows up as bullish as you always think you are it's like you tend to underestimate the amount of demand that shows up like I've just tried to, I've done pro formas on Blockworks on a rolling quarterly basis for six years and I'm like always wrong at this point um, so there, there is a possibility that it could take like a couple cycles or a couple of uh, churns so to speak to get steady state AVS demand to a certain point. Like I could see it not all coming online in time for to meet the amount of supply side from the eigenlayer marketplace, but like long term, I sort of feel like it will be less of a less of a concern. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think I think that's I think that's fair. I think it also makes a difference if the AVSs are looking at this as just a security spend line item or also a growth line item. Right. Mm -hmm. If there is a distribution aspect to being just in the eigenlayer marketplace, like, you know, I think that that can you can justify something like okay I have you know the five hundred million dollar sort of treasury right I'm actually a pretty big project like maybe an espresso or a hyperlane and like I want to offer some decent size yield right um, I can pay a, a that looks like an L one I think that that's actually going to be the meta theme of this cycle which is that we switch from having a I'm built on this for security I'm built on that for you know, throughput or technical implementation details. I, I had built, we're going to move towards, I am built on this platform for growth reasons, because I want to get to millions of users using my platform. Totally. It's going to happen, going to happen for games. It's going to happen for consumer applications. It's going to happen for base. It's gonna, like that. This is going to be the, the meta narrative that I think we, we all get to over the next year. Nothing else matters unless you have distribution. And we saw this play out in the last cycle where you had all the Solana ecosystem projects, all the Luna ecosystem projects, like their whole thing was we're going to ride the coattails of this movement that's really picking up steam. And I think the the alignment meme of like probably like last year is going to get flipped on its head because now you have an alignment mechanism. Yeah. 
All right. I want to um I want to just move on to spend 10 Mike minutes. Mike wants around. to talk Starkware real bad. No, no, no. I don't really <laughs> want to talk like well, I'm just curious to see where you guys fall on this. Uh and I do because I do feel like we didn't get any, so we're <laughs> I didn't get any either. I got I got none either. So bad. Yeah. But all right. So here's a I'm going to show a screenshot of what the distribution ultimately was and I feel like people were pr people were pretty divided on their drop. So 51.3% uh, went to StarkNet users, about 506,000 people got that. Um, then there was a, a spread, like the next biggest group was ETH stakers, um, which was uh, 20, almost just under 22%. There were some donations to the Ethereum protocol guild members, which is decently low, uh, open source developers, um, StarkX users, and uh, yeah, Ethereum devs. So basically there is a you know, some people thought this was a very well-architected sort of airdrop. There was another group of people that, uh, you know, pushed back quite a bit. And there are always, there's always going to be some amount of um, unhappiness post-airdrop. But it there's like, maybe I'll put it in two camps, right? There's kind of like, and this is the way that I see it. You guys can push back on me. And I think there's, um, there's one group of people that says the way that we do airdrops today are stupid. You are literally just giving money away. Like, look at the overall cost of an airdrop. Like, we have to find a way to either get this money into the right people's hands or to find a way to build organic demand. And then there's this other group of people, and I agree with some parts of that and disagree with other parts. And then there's another group of people, which honestly, in my opinion, tends to be like a lot of anon sort of trading accounts, which like there is kind of an airdrop entitlement, which is like they just expect, get expected to get dropped a massive amount of tokens that the implication is they're kind of going to sell it um and the, maybe the, the one other uh point that i'll bring up with regards to the specific airdrop is they didn't really do themselves any favors in this public messaging um which is how i think a lot of i think a lot of uh founders feel like this privately but one of the starkware guys you know not to call anyone out here but this has been all over twitter so i don't feel that bad is you know tweeted out hey we don't owe you anything b no one asked you to do anything c we care about community much more than you think d we are here for the long run if you don't understand this, go farm useless bullshit products. There are plenty of those. So even though probably a lot of founders feel like that, you, I feel like that has kind of blown back on them in a, in a decent way. And I just, I'll stop there. And I, I would love to get your guys' sense of how you thought about this airdrop and what you think about airdrops sort of writ large, where you fall. I mean, games. stupid tweet by that guy. What's what's the yeah, upside just, there? Just like antagonizing know. your community for no reason. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's actually pretty representative of, of the Stark. That is true. Very yeah. large. They 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 want to they want to build in a silo. They don't really care about community, and, and I think that that kind of shines through. Just the other thing I will say is like the the actual TGE being two years in the past, and all these investors are going to unlock in like three months. And like we've talked a lot about cliffs and and you know token supply matters in a very real way because there's financial gravity when people sell things. Um. But like, you're just going to hit this fucking cliff in two or three months. And, you know, on AVO right now, it's trading at, I think, like 17 billion or something. So, you know, I mean, who knows if that's a real bit or not. But like, assume that this is not going to go well because of that TGE question. And, you know, usually what happens when there's a TGE is the token is generated and then you start the best. This is like, we started the best two years ago and... It's going to well, hit in three months. There's like the token genesis event, when you deploy the contracts on chain, when the token is tradable, all those things are, are usually kind of baked into the same process. 
where you have a live token, it's airdropped to people, it's tradable, it gets implemented on exchanges, there's liquidity for it. People are able to stake it, do whatever they want to do with it, or whatever they can do with it. And, and that's the like token genesis of it. There is an element that happens before that, which is like, hey, we put our token on chain, nobody knows about it, it's, it's not a script contract, it's worth nothing, it's not even tradable, but like the software's on chain, it's been audited, et cetera. Like it seems like they just mixed up which event was which. And it's, it's, I mean, good for the investors because they will get an exit liquidity in two months. The, so, so things they did well on this, I think, um, number one, they filtered out a lot of the Sybil stuff, just like, you know, any projects listening to this, Sybil people are not your friends. I don't care if you have a bajillion, you know, transactions per day. These people are just farming your shit and they're not going to give anything back to you. These are mercenaries. I think what they didn't do as well, and I'd like to see more people do well, is like, what was the highest allocation that somebody got? I think it was like 200,000 or maybe like 100,000 Starkware tokens. I mean, like, some, some, of like the, some of like the actual like development shops within Starkware, like, yep. uh, they, I think they're much, much bigger, but. Uh, yeah, I mean. For users, like, yes. I, I think like the development shops and giving tokens to like ecosystem teams, like, on balance, like an okay use of tokens, but you should really just be giving those to your users. Yeah. Like, do not be gun shy about making your users rich and aligning them with you. And you can put guardrails on it. You have to do tasks. You know, even the blast kind of like cringe posting is like kind of, you know, it's just a good growth hack. Like, make them vests. Like, there's a bunch of different stuff that people can do. And you're giving out, I think, $1.2 billion of Starcore tokens at these prices. Damn. So, look, like, I, I think. I remember when we got the uni v2 airdrop michael and we and we made just a shitload of money on that but it was just like we were the largest uniswap lp for you know a year and a half like we have always used it for a lot of our liquidity solutions like we are aligned with them like we probably brought more volume and value than that airdrop has given to us and i think that's how people should think about these things like the whales are your friends especially in DeFi and tvl type of of games so that that's my perspective at least maybe like agree with all that one observation i i was cracking up at um uh hayden from uniswap tweeted his tweets have been very spicy lately by the way I yeah really, I, I agree them. um he said like gas fees mev extraction deflationary economy not enough you now have to airdrop to eat stakers to be aligned you know um if you want to help ethereum airdrop to you know uniswap users who are getting crushed by fees and whatnot um and i think that's points to just like yeah, it's interesting that the whole point of airdrop is to kind of bootstrap the demand side of both devs and users. And yet, you know, you're rewarding like Ethereum's like kind of supply side of stakers, which sure there's overlap there. Um, but yeah, I think I, I'm not sure about this whole like. I think, I think Hayden has one of the poorest senses of, of the ETH community, which is incredibly ironic given how much he's contributed. But <laughs> like the protocol guilds and we're gonna you know ref we should pay uniswap you know instead of ethereum like i just basically have no that part i agree with that uh, i agree with but i do uh, you know it feels like he's kind of the the one voice calling for you know the the apps sometimes um or like maybe pushing back a little bit but i yeah I, well i i just i don't know I, I think he's uh in his own bubble in many ways yeah that's fair yeah, it's just different perspectives. Different perspectives in the ecosystem. I uh, 
I, I would generally be in the camp of like I actually have enjoyed some of uh, Hayden's spicier tweets. At least we're at least we're yeah we're stirring the pot, um, which I think is always good. But I also think probably I, I'd be less in favor generally of like whatever the equivalent is of uh, what's it called in like value. It's like you're shouting your values out. Um, I forget. I'm blanking out the sexual virtue signal, but like virtue signaling. Thank you. Uh, I would be less uh, less in favor of anything that even looks like virtual signaling, like. Basically, I think Starknet should be doing things like making their users wealthy and aligned and sticky. Uh, I feel like that's where almost like the richest design space is yet to be sort of thought out for airdrops. And, you know, I, I do remember a couple of years ago, all these, uh, you know, talking to DeFi founders and they were like, yeah, we messed airdrops up. You know, it was impossible. The expectation was just to dump tokens without any vesting schedule. Like, I think that's going to be solved during the bear market. And it's like, didn't really get solved. Um, and and I, I do think it's, totally reasonable to say hey if i'm gonna airdrop you 40 you know 100 dollars that this vests and you have to do some stuff with it afterwards like that just feels super reasonable and it shouldn't be wildly over overly complicated I, I don't think um but yeah it feels like there's still some some work to do in in that whole area about how to make people sticky so and that shouldn't be a problem for the real organic users right because they in theory they're there anyway I'm looking forward to, like, these are mostly TVL type airdrops. I'm looking forward to seeing some of the gaming ones where it's like, here's a token, play a game. Here's a token, do this quest. Here's a token, you know, buy this NFT. Like, it's it's tough when you have that moment in time snapshot where it's like, boom, the airdrop's over. Here's all the money. Like, it, it works much better if it's um, a user count focused airdrop that you can kind of drip over time and, and make contingent on things. Like, I think that's, how we're going to see a hundred million people coming into the space in this, in the next nine, nine months. It's just like, you know, what happens when, you know, the IMX airdrop and all the games happens, what happens when like, these are the things that can really bring in different types of users and, and, and they can be more sticky because they're not used to this, like, shit, I just got an airdrop mentality. Mm. Yeah. Um, and after road guys. Yep. I think we got a shot. All right, guys, this was a really fun yeah, one. Guys. Appreciate y'all. All right. Awesome, guys. Later. Hey, everyone. Mike here. If you're a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring assets across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That is why we are incredibly excited to have teamed up with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom Bell Curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Take you, get your free NFT.